Section 31 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeanette Edwards. Princess Camion by Mademoiselle de Loubert. Translated by James Planchet. Part 2. When evening came, they repeated that they must retire to the reservoir, and it was not without pain that he relinquished the sweet occupation of seeking the princess. He had only been able in the whole day to interrogate a hundred and fifty, but as he was certain at least that she was not amongst them, he determined to take ten from that number. He had no sooner chosen them than he proceeded to carry them to the king's offices. But he was arrested by the most astonishing peals of laughter from the victims he was about to immolate. He was so surprised by it that he was some time without speaking. At length he interrupted them to inquire what it was they found so amusing in their present circumstances. They renewed their shouts of laughter so heartily that he could not help, in spite of his own sorrows, partaking in their mirth. They wanted to speak but could not for laughing. They could only ejaculate, Oh, I can say no more. Oh, I shall die of it. No, there is nothing in the world so amusing. And then roared again. At length he reached the palace with them, all laughing together, and having shown them to a pike-headed man, who seemed to be the principal cook. A mortar of green porphyry, ornamented with gold, was set before him, into which he put his ten crayfish, and prepared to pound them. At that moment the bottom of the mortar opened, emitted a brilliant flame which dazzled the prince, and then closing up again, appeared perfectly empty. Even the crayfish had vanished. This astonished, but at the same time gratified him, for he was very reluctant to pound such merry creatures. The man-pike, on the contrary, seemed sadly distressed at this adventure, and wept bitterly. The prince was as much surprised at this as he was at the laughter of the crayfish, and he could not ascertain the cause, as the pike's head was dumb. He returned, much disturbed by his adventure, to his pretty apartment, where he no longer found the crayfish, for they had returned to the reservoir. The following morning they re-entered without Marmot. He sought for his princess, and still not discovering her, he again chose ten of the finest for pounding. The same adventure occurred. They laughed, and the pikemen wept when they disappeared in the flame. For three months this extraordinary scene was daily repeated. He heard nothing of the King of the Whiting, and he was only uneasy at not discovering his beautiful princess. One evening, returning from the kitchen to his own apartments, he traversed the king's gardens, and passing near a palisade which surrounded a charming plantation, in the midst of which was a little sparkling fountain, he heard someone speaking. This surprised him, for he believed all those inhabitants of that kingdom to be as dumb as those he had seen. He advanced gently, and heard a voice which said, "'But, princess,' If you do not discover yourself, your husband will never find you. What can I do? said the other voice, which he recognized as that he had so often heard. 
The cruelty of Marmot compels me to remain silent, and I cannot discover myself without risking his life as well as my own. The wise Lumineuse, who aids him, conceals my features from him in order to preserve us to each other. He must absolutely pound me. It is an irrevocable sentence. But why should he pound you? inquired the other. You have never yet told me your history. Cintrinette, your confidant, would have related it to me had she not last week been chosen for the king's broth. Alas, replied the princess, that unfortunate has already undergone the torture which I await. Would that I were in her place, for assuredly by this time she is in her grotto. But, rejoined the other voice, as it is such a beautiful night, tell me now why you are subjected to the vengeance of Marmot. I have already told you who I am, and I burn with impatience to know more about you. Although it will renew my grief, replied the princess, I cannot refuse to satisfy you, especially as I must speak of Zerfil, and I take pleasure in all that relates to him. One may easily judge of the delight which the prince felt at this fortunate moment. He glided gently into the plantation, but as it was very dark he saw nothing. He listened, however, with all his ears, and this is word for word what he heard. My father was king of a country near Mount Caucasus. He reigned to the best of his ability over a people of incredible wickedness. There were perpetual revolts, and often the windows of his palace were broken by the stones which they hurled against them. The queen, my mother, who was a very accomplished woman, composed speeches for him to make to the disaffected. But if he succeeded in appeasing them one day, the next produced a new trouble. The judges were tired of condemning to death, and the executioners of hanging. At length things arrived at such a pitch that my father, seeing all our provinces were uniting against us, resolved to withdraw from the capital, that he might no longer witness so many disagreeable scenes. He took the queen with him, and left the kingdom to the government of one of his ministers, who was very wise and less timid than the king, my father. My mother was expecting my birth, and travelled with some difficulty to the foot of Mount Caucasus, where my father had chosen his habitation. Our wicked subjects fired the guns for joy at their departure, and next day strangled our minister, saying that he wished to carry matters with too high a hand, and that they much preferred their old sovereign. My father was not at all flattered by their preference, and remained concealed in his little retreat, where very soon I saw the light. They named me Camion, because I was so very diminutive. Moreover, the king and queen, tired of the honors which had cost them so dear, and wishing to conceal my high birth from me, brought me up as a shepherdess. At the end of ten years, which appeared to them like ten minutes, so happy were they in their retreat, the fairies of the Caucasus, indignant at the wickedness of the people who inhabited our kingdom, 
resolved to restore order in it. One day that I was tending my sheep in the meadow which adjoined our garden, two old shepherdesses accosted me and begged me to give them shelter for the night. They had such a sad, dejected air that my soul was moved with compassion. Follow me, said I. My father, who is a farmer, will receive you willingly. I ran to the cottage to announce their arrival to him. He came to meet them and received them with much kindness, as did my mother also. I then brought in my sheep and sent milk before our guests. Meanwhile, my father prepared them a nice little supper, and the queen, who, as I before told you, was a clever woman, entertained them wonderfully. I had a little lamb which I loved excessively. My father called me to bring it to him that he might kill it and roast it. I was not accustomed to dispute his will, and therefore took it to him. But I was so distressed at having to do so that I went and sat down weeping beside my mother, who was so occupied in talking to these good women that she took no notice of me. "'What is the matter with little Camion?' said one of them who saw me in tears. "'Alas, madame,' said I to her, "'my father is roasting my pet lamb for your suppers.' "'How?' said the one who had not yet spoken. "'Is it on our account that pretty Camion is thus distressed?' Then rising and striking the ground with her stick, a table rose out of it magnificently covered, and the two old women became two beautiful ladies, in dresses so dazzling with precious stones that I was struck motionless, so much so indeed that I paid no attention when my little lamb bounded into the room and made a thousand leaps, which much amused the company. I ran at length to him after having kissed the hands of the beautiful ladies. But I was quite amazed to find his wool all of silver pearl and covered with knots of rose-colored ribbon. My father and mother paid every attention to the fairies, for such I need not tell you they were both. They raised the king and queen who had fallen at their feet. "'King and queen,' said she, who was the most majestic, "'we have known you for a long time past, "'and your misfortunes have excited our pity. "'Do not imagine that greatness exempts anyone "'from the ills attached to humanity. "'You must know by experience "'that the more elevated the rank, "'the more keenly are they felt. "'Your patience and virtue "'have raised you above your misfortunes.' It is time to give you your reward. I am the fairy Lumineuse, and I come to ask what would be most agreeable to your majesties. Speak, and do not fear to put our power to the proof. Consult together. Your wishes shall be accomplished. But say nothing respecting Camion. Her destiny is apart from yours. The fairy Marmot envious of the brilliant fate which has been promised her, has obscured it for a time. But Camion will better know the value of her happiness when she shall have experienced the ills of life. We will protect her by softening them. That is all we are permitted to tell you. Speak. With that exception, we can do anything for you. The fairies after this harangue were silent. 
The queen turned to the king that he might reply, for she wept to find I was doomed to be unhappy. But my father was no better able than herself to speak. He uttered piteous exclamations, and I, seeing them in tears, left my lamb to come and weep with them. The fairies waited with much impatience and in perfect silence till our tears were ended. At length my mother pushed the king gently to let him know they were expecting his reply. He took his handkerchief from his eyes and said, that as it was decided that I should be miserable, nothing they could offer him could be agreeable to him, and that he refused the happiness which they promised him, as he should always find it embittered by the idea of what I had to dread. The queen added, seeing that the poor man could say no more, that she begged the fairies to take their lives on the day when my sad destiny was to be fulfilled for that her only wish was not to be compelled to witness my misery. The good fairies, affected by the extreme grief which reigned in the royal family, spoke together in a whisper. At length Luminous, who had already addressed us, said to the queen, Be consoled, madam. The misfortunes which threaten Camion are not so great but that they may terminate happily. For from the moment that the husband destined for her shall have obeyed the commands of fate, she will be happy with him, and the malignity of our sister can have no further power over either. The prince we have selected is one worthy of her, and all that we can tell you is that you must absolutely lower your daughter every morning into the well, and that she must bathe in it for half an hour. If you strictly observe this rule, Perhaps she may escape the evil with which she is threatened. At twelve years old, the critical period of her fate will commence. If she reach the age of thirteen in safety, there will be nothing more to fear. That is all which regards her. Now wish for yourselves, and we can gratify your desires. The king and queen looked at each other, and after a short silence, the king asked to become a statue until after I should have completed my thirteenth year. And the queen limited her request to the modest one that the temperature of the well in which I was to be dipped should always be according to the season. The fairies, charmed at this excess of paternal tenderness, added that the water should be orange-flower water, and that the king, whenever the queen should throw this water over him, should resume his natural form, and again become a statue when he pleased. At length they took leave of us, after having lauded the king and queen for their moderation, and promised to assist them whenever they should require it, by burning a bit of the silver pearl with which my lamb was covered. They vanished, and I felt real anguish for the first time in my life, at seeing my father become a great statue of black marble, the queen burst into tears, and I also. But at length, as everything has an end, I ceased to cry, and occupied myself in consoling my mother, for I felt a sudden increase both of sense and sensibility. The queen passed her life at the feet of the statue, and I, after having bathed as they had ordered me, went to milk my ewes. Upon that food we lived, 
for the queen would not take anything else, and it was only from love to me that she could be prevailed on to preserve an existence, which to her was so full of bitterness. Alas, my daughter, said she sometimes, of what use to us have been our grandeur and our high birth? For she no longer concealed from me my rank. Would it not have been better to have been born in a lower sphere, since a crown draws down on us such great misfortunes? Virtue and my affection for you, my dear Camion, alone enable me to support them. But there are moments when my soul seems impatient to leave me, and I confess I feel pleasure in imagining that I shall soon die. It is not for me you should weep, added she, but for your father, whose grief, still greater than mine, has carried him so far as to make him desire a worse fate than ceasing to live. Never forget, my dear, the gratitude you owe him. Alas, madame, said I, I am not capable of ever forgetting it, and still less can I forget that you have wished to live in order to assist me. I was bathed regularly every day, and my mother was sadly distressed to see the king always in an animate statue. She dared not, however, recall him to life, fearing to inflict on him the pain of witnessing the misfortune with which I was threatened. The fairies, not having specified what it was, we were in mortal fear. The queen especially fancied no end of frightful things, because her imagination had an unlimited field to range over. As for me, I did not trouble myself much about it. So true is it that youth is the only time when we enjoy the present. My mother told me repeatedly that she felt a great desire to bring my father to life again, and I had the same inclination. At length, after six months, finding that the fairy's bath had greatly embellished both my person and mind, she resolved to gratify this longing, if but to give the king the pleasure of seeing my improvement. She therefore desired me to bring her some water from the well. Accordingly, after my bath, I drew up a vase of this marvelous water, and the statue was no sooner sprinkled with it than my father became a man again. The queen threw herself at his feet to ask pardon for having troubled his repose. He raised her, and embracing her tenderly, forgave her readily, and she presented me to him. I am ashamed to tell you that he was both delighted and surprised, for how can you believe me, beautiful princess, said the voice hesitatingly, me the most hideous of crayfish. Alas! I can well believe you, replied the one to whom she spoke. I also might boast of being handsome, but is it possible to appear so in these frightful shells? Pray continue, however, for I am eager to hear the rest of your history. Well then, said the other voice, the king was enchanted with me, loaded me with caresses, and asked the queen if she had any news to tell him. Alas! said she, who in this desert should come to tell me any? Besides being occupied solely in lamenting your transformation, I have taken little interest in the world, which is nothing to me without you. Well, said the king, 
I will tell you some news then, for do not think that I have been always asleep. The fairies who protect us have disclosed to me the punishment of my subjects. They have made an immense pond of my kingdom, and all the inhabitants are menfish. A nephew of the fairy Marmot, whom they have set up as their king, persecutes them with unequaled cruelty. He devours them for the least fault, and at the end of a certain time a prince will arrive who will dethrone him and reign in his stead. It is in this kingdom that Camion will be made perfectly happy. This is all that I know, and it was not a bad way of passing my time, said he laughingly, to have discovered these things. The fairies came every night to inform me of what was doing, and I should perhaps have known much more if you had let me remain a statue a little longer. But, however, I am so delighted to see you once more that I do not think I shall very soon wish to become a statue again. We passed some time in the happiest manner possible. The king and queen, notwithstanding, were rather anxious when they thought of my approaching the age of thirteen. As the queen bathed me with great care, she hoped that the prediction would not be fulfilled. But who can boast of escaping their destiny? One morning, that the queen had risen early and was gathering some flowers to decorate our cottage, because the king was fond of them, she saw come out from beneath the tuberose an ugly animal, something like a marmot. This beast threw itself on her and bit her nose. She fainted with the pain which this bite occasioned her, and my father, at the end of an hour, not seeing her return, went to seek her. Judge of his consternation at finding her nearly dead and covered with blood. He uttered fearful cries. I ran to his assistance, and we together carried the queen into the house and placed her in bed, where she was two hours without coming to herself. At length she began to give some signs of life, and we had the pleasure of seeing her very shortly recovered, except from the pain of the bite, which caused her much suffering. She asked directly if I had been to bathe, but we had quite forgotten it in our anxiety about her. She was much alarmed at hearing this. However, seeing that as yet no accident had happened to me, she became reassured and related to us her adventure, which surprised us immensely. The day passed over without any other trouble. The king had taken his gun and sought in every direction for the horrid beast without finding it. The next day at sunrise the queen awoke and came to fetch me to repair the fault of the preceding morning. She lowered me into the well as usual, but alas, fatal and unlucky day, at this same instant, although the heavens were quite serene, a dreadful clap of thunder rent the air, the sky seemed suddenly all on fire, and from a burning cloud there issued a flaming dart which flew into the well. My mother in her fright let go of the cord which held me, and I sank to the bottom, without hurting myself, it is true but horrified at discovering that I was partially transformed into an enormous fish, which they call a whale. I rose to the surface again and called the queen with all my power. She did not reply. I was sadly afflicted and wept bitterly, 
as much for her loss as at my metamorphosis, when I felt that invisible power force me to descend to the bottom of the well. Having reached it, I entered a grotto of crystal, where I found a species of nymph, ugly enough, for she was like an immensely fat frog. However, she smiled at my approach and said to me, Camion, I am the nymph of the bottomless well. I have orders to receive thee, and to make thee undergo the penance to which thou art sentenced for having failed to bathe. Follow me, and do not remonstrate. What alas could I do? I was so distressed and so faint at finding myself on dry ground that I had not the strength to speak. She dragged me, not without pain, into a saloon of green marble which was near the grotto. There she put me into an immense golden tub filled with water, and I then began to recover my senses. The good nymph appeared delighted at this. I am called Citronette, said she to me. I am appointed to wait on thee. Thou canst order me to do anything thou wilt. I know perfectly well both the past and the present. As for the future, it is not my province to penetrate it. Command me and at least I can render the time of thy penance less irksome to thee. I embraced the good Citronette at these words, and related to her the events of my life. I then inquired of her what had become of the king and queen. She was about to reply, when a hideous marmot, as large as a human being, entered the saloon and froze me with horror. She walked upon her hind legs, and leant upon a golden wand, which gave her a dignified air. She approached the tub in which I would willingly have drowned myself. I was so frightened, and raising her wand, with which she touched me. Camion, said she, thou art in my power, and nothing can release thee but thy obedience and that of the husband whom my sisters have destined for thee. Listen to me, and cast off this fear which does not befit a person of your rank. Since thine infancy, I wish to take care of thee, and to marry thee to my nephew, the king of the Whiting. Luminous and two or three other of my sisters combined to deprive me of this right. I was provoked, and not being able to revenge myself on them, I resolved to punish thee for their audacity. I doom thee, therefore, to be a whale for at least half the term of thy existence. My sisters protested so strongly against what they called my injustice, that I diminished my vengeance for three quarters and a half but I reserve to myself the right of marrying thee to my nephew in return for my complaisance. Luminous, who is imperious, and unfortunately my superior, would not listen to this arrangement, because she had destined thee before me to a prince whom she protected. I was compelled then to consent to her plan in spite of my resentment. All that I could obtain was that the first who should deliver you from my claws should be thy husband. Here are their portraits, continued she, showing me two gold miniature cases. 
which will enable thee to recognize them. But if one of them come to deliver thee, he must betroth himself to thee whilst thou art in the tub, and before thou canst leave it, he must tear off the skin of the whale. Without that, thou wilt always remain a fish. My nephew would not hesitate a moment to execute that order. But the favorite of Luminous will consider it a horrible task, for he has the air of a very delicate little gentleman. Set then thy wits to work to make him skin thee, and after that thou shalt be no longer unhappy, if to be a beautiful whale, very fat and well-fed, and up to the neck in water, can be called unhappiness. To these words I made no reply, but remain very dejected, as much at my present state as by the thought of scaling to which I must submit. Marmot disappeared, leaving with me the two miniature cases. I wept over my misfortunes and my situation, without dreaming of looking at the portraits, when the good and sympathizing Citronette said to me, Come, we must not lament over ills which cannot be remedied. Let us see if I cannot help to console you. But first, try not to weep so much, for I have a tender heart, and I cannot see your tears without feeling inclined to mingle mine with them. Let us chase them away by looking at these portraits. So saying, she opened the first case, and showing it to me, we both uttered shrieks like melusines at seeing a hideous whiting's head, painted, it is true, with all the advantages which could be given to it. But in spite of that, never in the memory of man had anything been seen so ugly. Take away that object, cried I to her. I cannot bear the sight of it longer. I would rather be a whale all my life than marry that horrible whiting. She did not give me time to finish my imprecations on this monster, but said, Behold this darling young man. Oh, as for him, would he but skin you, I should be delighted. I looked hastily to see if what she said was true. I was only too soon convinced. A noble and charming countenance presented itself to my view. Fine eyes, full of tenderness, embellished a face which was both mild and majestic. An air of intellectuality was spread over it, which complemented the fascination of this delightful painting. A profusion of black hair, curling naturally, gave an air to it which Citronette missed for indifference, but which I interpreted, and I think rightly, as conveying a precisely opposite sentiment. I contemplated this beautiful face with a pleasure of which I was scarcely conscious. Citronette remarked at first, "'Without a doubt,' cried she. "'That is the one we will choose.' This bantering roused me from my reverie, and coloring at my own ecstasy. "'Why should I trouble myself?' said I. "'Ah, oh, my dear Citronette, this appears to me very like another trick of that cruel marmot. She has exhausted her art in endeavoring to make me regret the impossibility of finding a similar object in nature.' What? said Cintronette. Already such tender reflections on this portrait? Ah, truly, I did not expect that so soon. I blushed again at this jest, 
and became quite embarrassed at finding that I had too innocently betrayed the effect which this beautiful painting had produced on my heart. Centronette again read my thoughts. No, no, said she, embracing me. Do not repent of this avowal. Your frankness charms me, and to console you, I will tell you that Marmotte does not deceive you, and that there is in the world a prince who is the veritable original of the picture. This assurance filled me with joy at the moment. But the next instant that feeling departed, when I remembered that this prince would never see me, as I was in the depths of the earth, and that Marmot, by her power, would sooner enable her monster of a nephew to penetrate my abode than give the least assistance to a prince whom she hated, because they had destined me to him without her consent. I no longer concealed what I thought from Citronette. The attempt, indeed, would have been useless, for she read with surprising facility the utmost secret of my thoughts. I therefore preferred to take the credit of candor. She deserved my confidence for her attachment to me, and I found it a great consolation, for I have felt from that time that when the heart is filled with one object, there is much happiness in being able to speak of it. In fact, I loved from that moment and Citronette dissipated, with much address and clear-sightedness, the confusion and trouble which the commencement of a violent passion produces in the mind. She soothed my grief, allowing me to speak of it, and when I had exhausted words, she gently changed the conversation, which almost always, however, bore upon my troubles or my affection. She had informed me that the king, my father, was transported to the abode of the King of the Whiting, and that the Queen, at the moment that she lost me, had become a crayfish. I could not understand this. One could not become a crayfish, said I. Can you better understand how you have become a whale, said she. She was right, but we are often surprised at things which happen to others, although we have in ourselves still greater subject for astonishment. My small experience was the cause of this. Citronette laughed frequently at my innocence, and was surprised to find me so eloquent in my affection, for truly I was so on that subject, and I found that love throws much light into the mind. I could not sleep. I woke the good-natured Citronette a hundred times in the night to talk to her of my prince. She had told me his name, and that he hunted almost every day in the forest beneath which I was interred. She proposed to me to try to attract him to our dwelling, but I would not consent, although I was dying to do so. I was afraid that he would die for want of air. We were accustomed to it. That was a different thing. I feared also that it would be too great a freedom. Besides, I was in despair at appearing to him in the form of a whale, and I measured this aversion for me by that which the portrait of the King of the Whiting had inspired me with. Citronette reassured me, telling me that spite of the whale's body my face was charming. I believed it sometimes, but more often I was uneasy, and after having looked at myself, I could not imagine I was sufficiently handsome 
to inspire with love one who had made me so well acquainted with it. My self-love came to the support of my prudence. Alas, how rarely it is that our virtues can be traced to pure inspirations. I pass my time in forming projects for obtaining a sight of him and letting him see me, and rejected by turns each that occurred to me. Citronette was a great assistance to me at this time, for it must be confessed that she has plenty of sense, and still more gentleness and amiability. One day that I was even more sad than usual, for love has the peculiarity of infecting gentle souls with melancholy, I saw the frightful Marmot enter, with two persons whom I did not at first recognize. I took it into my head that it was her wretched nephew whom she brought with her. I uttered frightful shrieks as they approached me hastily. Why, she could not cry louder, said the horrid Marmot, if they were skinning her. Look what terrible harm is done to her. Good gracious sister, said one of these persons who accompanied her, and whom I then remembered with joy having formerly seen in our village. A truce to your stories of skinning, and let us tell Camion what we have to tell her. Willingly, said Marmot, but on the conditions which you are aware of. Camion, said the good fairy, without replying to Marmot, we are too much distressed at your condition not to think of remedying it, more especially as you have not deserved it. My sisters and I have resolved to ameliorate it as much as lies in our power. This, therefore, is what we have determined on. You were about to be presented at the court of the prince to whom I have destined you from your infancy. But, my dear child, you will not appear there as you are, and you are commanded to return three nights a week and plunge again into your tub. For until you are married... And skinned! interrupted the odious marmot, laughing violently. The good fairy merely turned towards her, shrugging her shoulders, and continued, Until you are married, you will be a whale in this place. We can tell you no more. The rest you will be informed of by degrees. But above all, keep your secret. For if a word escape you which tends to discover it, neither I nor my sisters can do anything for you, and you will be delivered up to my sister Marmot. That is what I expect, said the wicked fairy. And I already see her in my power, for a secret kept by a girl would be a phenomenon. That is her own affair, said Luminous, for it was she who had already spoken. To proceed, my daughter, said she, you will become a little doll made of ivory, but capable of thinking and speaking. We shall preserve all your features and I give you a week to consider whether what I propose to you will suit you. We will then return, and you shall tell me if you consent to it, or if you would prefer awaiting here the event which must bring you one of the two husbands selected for you. I had not time to reply. The fairies departed after these words and left me astounded by what I had just seen and heard. I remained with Citronette, who represented to me that it was a great treat for me to become an ivory doll. I sighed when I thought that my prince would never take a fancy to such a bauble. 
but at length the desire to see him and become acquainted with him overcame the anxiety to please him, and I resolved to accept the proposal which was made to me, and the more readily as Zerfel, for they had mentioned his name, might possibly be forestalled by the king of the whiting, and this idea made me nearly die of grief. Citronette told me that Prince Zerfil hunted daily in the forest which was above us, and I made her take every day the form of a stag, a hound, or a wild boar, in order that she might bring me some news, which never failed to be in some way connected with the subject which occupied my heart. She described him to me as a hundred times handsomer than his picture, and my imagination embellished him to such a degree that I resolved to see him or to die. But one more day had to elapse before the expected arrival of the fairies, and Citronette, in the form of a wild boar, was roaming the forest to find food for my curiosity, when suddenly I saw her return, followed by the too amiable Zerfil. I cannot describe to you my joy and astonishment. There are no terms which can express them to you. But what enchanted me most was that this charming prince appeared equally delighted with me. Perhaps I desired this too much, not to help to deceive myself. However, I thought I saw in his eyes that he felt the impression he had made. Citronette, more anxious for my happiness than mindful of our ecstasy, aroused us from it by begging him either to skin or to marry me. Then coming to myself and feeling the danger of my situation, I joined in her entreaties, and by our prayers and tears induced him to plight me his faith. I had hardly accepted it when he vanished. I know not how, and I found myself in my ordinary form lying on a good bed. I was no longer a whale, but I was still in the depths of the earth in the green saloon, and Citronette had lost the power of leaving it and of transforming herself. I expected the fairies in a state of the greatest trepidation. My love had redoubled since I had become personally acquainted with its object, and I feared that my charming husband might be included in the vengeance of the fairies for not having waited till they could witness my marriage. Citronette had enough to do to reassure me. I could not overcome my grief and fear. Marmotte appeared with the dawn of day, but I neither saw Luminous nor her companion. She did not seem more irritable than usual. She touched me with her wand without speaking to me, and I became a charming little doll, which she put in her toothpick case, and then transported herself into the presence of the queen mother of my betrothed. She gave me to her, with orders to marry me to her son, or to expect all the evil which she was capable of inflicting telling her that I was her goddaughter, and was called the Princess Camion. I took, in fact, a great fancy to my mother-in-law. I considered her charming, as being the mother of Zerfil, whom I adored, and my caresses were returned by her. I was transported every night into the green saloon, and there enjoyed the pleasure of meeting my husband. For the same power acted on him, and transported him likewise into this subterraneous dwelling. I knew not why they forbade me to tell him my secret, as I was married. But I kept it in spite of his impatience to know it. You will see, continued the speaker with a sigh, 
How impossible it is to avoid one's fate. But it begins to get light, and I feel I am quite tired with being so long out of the water. Let us return to the reservoir, and tomorrow at the same hour, if we are not selected for the soup of that worthless king of the whiting, we will resume the thread of our discourse. Come, let us go. Zerfel heard no more, and himself returned to his apartment, much concerned at not having made known to the princess his being so near. But the fear of increasing her misfortunes by this indiscretion consoled him for not having risked it. The misery of knowing she was likely to perish by his hand made him resolve to continue his diligent search among the crayfish. End of section 31 Recording by Jeanette Edwards